Mollusca. Hello and welcome to Animalia, the podcast all about animals and the weird and interesting things that they do. I'm Annie. And I'm Farley. And in today's episode, we're talking about a topic that I find really fascinating. It involves millions of toxic toads, a cute endangered marsupial, and some really creative scientific research. We chatted with two experts who worked on this problem during their PhDs. We actually recorded this interview a while back in a simpler time, before there was a global pandemic. I'm Dr. Ella Kelly, and I'm a Threatened Species Policy Officer at the Department of Environment, Land, Water and Planning. I am Naomi Indigo, and I just handed my thesis in, and I don't know if I'm a doctor yet. Hopefully I am. (laughs) Uh, But I work for Zoos Victoria as a research assistant and a presenter now. Since recording this interview, Naomi has officially become Dr. Naomi Indigo. Congratulations. How did you get interested in science and conservation? Um, I'm not sure, really. I kind of just fell into it. I, um, I was quite into art at school. My parents are both graphic designers. And then I got to year 12 and I was like, well, I don't know, I don't want to do that. <laughs> so I came to Melbourne Uni on an open day and I went to the zoology building. I was like, oh, this is cool. And then I kind of just never left until like recently. <laughs> <laughs> Um, similarly as well, I sort of fell into it, although I've always been really obsessed with animals and caring for animals, uh, to the extent that I used to cry when it was raining or windy outside because I would worry about the animals who were left outside. (laughs) So (laughs) sad. So sweet. Yeah. So I think I was destined to always work with animals or around animals. So, yeah. Yeah. So Farley was really keen for us to start this out too with just like the story of cane toads, how they came to be here. I think it's the greatest story and the biggest travesty maybe ever. <laughs> and this is coming from like a country too that's introduced a lot of things. Yep. But the cane toad one is just phenomenally stupid. Yep. Yeah. And they, yeah. Cane toads were introduced in the 1930s and they were released on farmland, sugarcane farms to help eradicate the cane beetle. Although the issue with that is that cane beetles actually live quite high up in the cane and cane toads don't climb or jump that high either. (laughs) (laughs) So they quickly, uh, they enjoyed the Australian environment, especially in Queensland, it's nice and warm, lots of water. And uh, one female can have up to 30,000 babies at once. So they exponentially have increased in number. Yep, and so they've been since the 30s. They kind of started out slow, so around Cairns, I think it was south of Cairns they were introduced, started spreading relatively slowly and they've since colonised Queensland across to the NT and now they're, now they're getting into WA and down into New South Wales and the thing is they're getting faster the longer they're here because there's this thing called, well, it's sometimes called spatial sorting or I like the Olympic village effect which is the really fast cane toads with really long legs get to the edge of the invasion front 
and then they breed with each other. So it's all the Olympians breeding with each other and having really fast, long-legged babies that then all breed with each other. So they're getting faster and faster as they're moving across the continent. So they used to move like, I don't know, not very far a night and now they move kilometres every night because they're just crazy dispersers. Um, But I guess we haven't mentioned the reason why it's so problematic that cane toads have spread so far. So uh, in Australia, we don't have any native toads. So we've got frogs here, but no toads. And the thing that's the problem about cane toads is they have these poison sacs on their back. So they excrete this toxin called bufotoxin when they're distressed or attacked or um, just in trouble, they'll excrete this bufotoxin. And the problem in Australia is that none of our native species have ever been exposed to anything like this before, so it's extremely deadly to them. It's a, um, it targets their cardiovascular system, I think, and so they, they basically go into cardiac arrest almost immediately after coming into contact with the toxin. So there's instances of native species, so these will be predatory species that will attack frogs naturally, so they will eat eat frogs, so it'll be goannas, snakes, freshwater crocodiles and northern quolls. And they can just maybe even um, attack the cane toad but not even eat it and they'll still get a lethal hit of the toxin and they'll die almost immediately, so it's really, really toxic. So brutal. Yes. And so as cane toads have moved across the continent, they've wiped out all these populations of our native predatory species and basically altered ecosystems really drastically. Mm. And what does the cane toad look like as well for someone who might never have seen one before? So uh, what does the cane toad look like? So they're brown basically and they may be a sandy colour. I've seen some that are a bit yellow and sandy. They are a bit warty. They've got tubercles on their back and uh, they just look like a basic toad really. Yeah they're quite big um they're probably about the size of a what's this big a large handful. They can get really big grapefruit. Yeah a big grapefruit. So it's, just, it's a massive toad. Yeah big yeah. big toad. They can yeah. get very big. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I feel like it makes it easy for them to people to hate them as well. Like yeah. they're not yeah, they, pretty animals. They're not pleasant no. looking and so they really get a lot of hate like because they're not really great for the environment. They're not native here and they also look terrible. So compared to the other invasive species like we have a lot in Australia they're not the only ones but they get the most hate they are the least favorite yeah it's also one of those things too I think that at least Americans would I know the fact that they even have trash cans and facilities where you can actually dispose them because they actually encourage people to kill them yeah collect them and yeah yeah. Which is not something that we usually do anywhere else pretty much no no. so hated they actually yeah yeah and people will swerve cars to run them over yeah. and all that sort of stuff Where but I'm like from, it's a yeah to, but people are quite cruel to them uh yeah although we do want we do want them removed but they can mm. they can get a bit of a an awful death sometimes so we don't yeah. condone that but and I guess the point is like as Naomi said before they can a female can have 30,000 mm. babies so killing it's it's almost 
it would be impossible to eradicate them by yeah. killing them My, with the methods we, we, that we, we can have try now. <laughs> yeah, we can try. We can yeah. try and you can limit the numbers, yeah. but it is really, really hard to get rid of them or even reduce their numbers because they just breed so proficiently. My um, old supervisor from when I was doing my thesis uh, used this analogy once and removing toads or trying to eradicate toads is like taking a cup and trying to stop a tsunami. So I think that's a really good analogy Mm. for trying to eradicate toads just by killing them by yourself or even community groups. They haven't had much luck, basically. Because they are a tsunami. Yeah. 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 So it's just accepted pretty much that they're here to stay. Like you can try and stop them from getting further, but... Yeah. 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 Once they're established, they're really... At the moment, with the methods we have, they're impossible to get rid of. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so this leads us very nicely into your guys' research then. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, it does. So how do you help native predators when you can't remove the threat? So that was kind of where our work comes in. So we work on a uh, adorable little marsupial called the northern quoll, which is one of four quoll species we have here in Australia and if you haven't seen a quoll before I suggest you google it because they're adorable and <laughs> the northerns are the cutest <laughs> yes, undoubtedly yeah and we know because we've done PhDs in it so <laughs> <laughs> um, and they're a um, uh, carnivorous or omnivorous uh, marsupial they're basically sometimes described as a native cat they kind of look a little bit like a possum but they'll um, attack and eat uh, frogs and insects and small mammals and that sort of thing. So they uh, unfortunately will also attack toads if they come across them. Mm. And this is a problem. Yes. Yes, this is a problem. So they die almost instantly once they attack the cane toad. And areas where quolls and cane toads are, uh, we've noticed that uh, quolls have virtually disappeared almost instantly once cane toads have arrived. So it's quite a big problem. So yeah. we're looking at novel ways to sort of mitigate that, yeah. that impact. One idea that scientists like Naomi and Ella have been exploring is how to teach quolls not to eat toads. To understand how this might work, picture a time when you ate something that made you feel really, really sick. Did you still want to eat it afterwards? Or did even the smell of it make you want to vomit? We all have this strong tendency to associate particular foods with feeling sick. This process of developing an aversion to certain foods is called Conditioned Taste Aversion, or CTA. It's thought to be an important survival mechanism, which helps us learn what's safe to eat. But if a quoll instantly dies after eating a cane toad, how do you give them a chance to learn? So how do you begin to approach that? Because that's one of those things where you have an animal attacking another animal. How would you actually go about approaching that idea? Mm -hmm. Because not as simple as just be like, hey, guys, yeah. don't. Stop. Yeah, if only Stop. we could you tell them. Put, yeah. put up flyers and stuff. But. Yeah. yeah, well, I guess the first way is is trying to kind of tell them not to, basically, which Teach is... Teach them not to, yeah. yeah. So um, there was a, there's a technique called conditioned taste aversion, and uh, it's been shown to work in some other native pred- predators in other countries. For example, coyotes. It was uh, tested on coyotes, uh, and they wanted 
farmers wanted the coyotes to stop attacking sheep. Um, condition taste aversion is really useful when I guess the mechanism of impact uh, involves an animal's feeding behaviour. So it basically stops an animal wanting uh, to eat or to attack a particular animal. And it's really, really similar to the concept of when you perhaps had too much tequila or too much <laughs> gin one night or you've eaten bad seafood and you throw up. And then even just the smell of that, tequila or gin or seafood, makes you nauseous and you never want to touch it again. So it's a really powerful and innate response to avoiding a particular food type. So we harness this idea or this technique and we were looking at using conditioned taste aversion to stop quolls from attacking cane toads. So how do you do that? Uh, you just give them a little bit of toad, like we make toad sausages basically, and if you give them... Uh, toad legs aren't as poisonous so you can mince up the toad legs or just give them a bit of toad and lace it with a chemical that won't hurt them but will make them feel pretty terrible, pretty <laughs> sick and nauseous, have a bad night. And then hopefully from then on they associate the smell and the taste of that toad meat with feeling awful and they won't attack toads after that. So if you have to train a wild animal to do something like that, to have taste aversion to another odd animal. Do you just shape it in the form of a toad? You have to make, <laughs> no. I guess the smell will be yeah. so distinct because a toad mm. would have such a distinct smell. That'd yeah. be enough. So and, also, and also how many times do you actually have to do it as well? Yeah, yeah, so it's because, as Naomi said, it's such a strong response and you also don't want to, you want it to be one-off because if you experience it multiple times and you don't, nothing terrible happens, it might limit the impact of the aversion so if you just have one terrible experience that's going to be really strong to stop you attacking the toad and what was the other question sorry what was the your shape of it. the oh. shape of it yeah so ella did ella this is your yeah. experiment okay oh, so you i did, did trials a, yeah we we thought so quolls are um nocturnal they're mammals they're marsupials so we thought that it was probably the smell that was Mm. that they use as a sensory cue to kind of um, know what to eat, not what to eat. So we figured that it was probably the smell that they were associating with the aversion. But I just did a, a bit of an experiment looking at changing different types of meat and different types of smells and, and, and shapes and things to see if that had any impact. And it's, yeah, it's the smell and a bit of the taste as well. So they'll, they'll kind of just avoid meat that has had a bad experience associated with it. So it doesn't really need to look like a toad. So they can just be sausages or I've just used toad legs before that I've stuffed with a bit of <laughs> um, the chemical thiobendazole, which makes them feel a little bit gross. And, yeah. For animals like quolls who, who hunt based on smell, it's, it's more important that the taste is there, but for like birds of prey, for example, they do need, they would need the shape of a toad or for it to look like a toad for that aversion. Um, but yeah, but for yeah, the throughout quals. the research, yeah, for quolls, definitely smell and taste is the more salient cue. Mm. And how do you actually go about doing this? So <clears throat> simple enough, you just, you know, make some sausages, toss them on yep. the wild, and the animals come up to them. Were you actually capturing the animals, bringing this like, Kept the, no, temporary captivity or what actually what's the process 
So essentially, yeah, what you said. So basically we made a bunch of sausages and we did put them out in the wild uh, using an experiment. Quolls were definitely uh, taking the baits. Um, We did trial them in captivity as well to make sure that definitely the sausages worked. We didn't know at all if quolls would even take a cane toad sausage or if they would then. (laughs) (laughs) Who knows? Um, So we trialled that in captivity first and then uh, we took it out into the wild, our bait prototype. And wild quolls also were the most attracted to the baits. And you know that because you had cameras out there. Yeah, so we used motion sensor camera traps. So I was able to gather a lot of data um, and quolls have unique spot patterns as well. So I was able to tell individuals uh, who who would eat a bait and who wouldn't, who would come back. So That's really useful. Yeah, it was really, really useful uh, technology to be able to use and to be able to do it sort of remotely, I guess, in some ways. Um, but, yeah, so we popped them out in the environment and, um, and trialled them, essentially. Um, but it does involve, I guess, the, the grossest part was... was the bait design, building yeah. the bait design. Um, <laughs> yeah. You just involves... don't know the smell of toad no. meat until it's such a distinct smell. It's so gross. Oh, just, just, just <laughs> grab it. I it. The oh, it's just it's it's death, but it's 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 yeah. weird. It's I death. Can, I can it's taste smells. it. Yeah, <laughs> like it's a just it It's up. really distinct. Yeah. It's oh, it's it smells like a dead animal, but it has its own unique twist. To it's got it. it's got a swampy smell yeah. to it, as you would imagine, and it definitely smells like something that you shouldn't eat. So, and yet. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know where you got your toads. My toads that I used in my research, I got from uh, a community groups who went out um, hunting, uh, toad busting basically. So they'd go out on a Tuesday and Thursday and just catch as many toads as they could around Darwin to try and limit the impact and then take those toads back and dispose of them in freezers. They have big, massive freezers full of dead cane toads and I would grab Mm. a bag about like a big garbage bag full of dead frozen cane toads that were all stuck together solid oh my god God. yeah really heavy bag and take it back and put it in the freezer and every night I'd need like nine toads or something for whatever experiment I was running so I'd have to take the bag out about an hour before I wanted to use them leave it in the sun and wait for the toads to start defrosting and then chisel off oh my god toads (laughs) I'll never forget which is oh it's 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 not fun. Things we do for yeah, our I know. Oh, they, they chose to do this, by the way. Yeah. This is not like a job they had to do. This is yeah, a and everyone's choice. like, oh wow, your job's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> Outside chiseling away. Yeah, I'll never forget yeah. um, a cubic square meter of frozen cane toads arriving in the Kimberley and just gulping at the thought of how, how are we going to deal with this but um because you don't yeah. want to defrost them all at once no. because then you have all this because they don't refreeze well no. well I used to do it on mass I would defrost and make uh I would have a a chain basically we would have a production line someone would be de-socking which is a disgusting word, but de-gloving, I guess, the uh, leg of the cane toad and then somebody was on the mincer, somebody else hey, was so many packing terms the sausage. You just said so casually, de-gloving the cane toad. 
Yeah. <laughs> I mean like tearing the skin off the, what is it? Yeah, that? off the back legs. Okay. So the back legs were the least poisonous. So we, yeah, we'll give a bit of context. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. <laughs> yeah. So someone would literally be, yeah, at the sink degloving these legs and That's you would get something. a blister from degloving so much. <laughs> oh. <laughs> It sounds like serial killer yeah, stuff. It, like, it, I yeah, I did like a serial oh, killer yeah. on many occasions. I mean, we were serial killing cane toads, so yeah. you could call us that, I guess. Yeah, we have Hopefully not, toads. but yeah. we're doing it for the greater good. The yeah. good of the quals, okay? Just remember that, yeah. listeners. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a cubic meter, you said, of cane toads? Yeah, that was, again, you from the toad busters. You were just lying. Though. You don't want to defrost it at once, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Who has ever said that? Ever. Well, I didn't want to, like, because I wasn't mass producing sausages. I was using them for little bits and experiments and things. So I didn't need too many at once. So I didn't want a full garbage bag of toads defrosted. So I would have to be really careful about not defrosting too much. So you chisel them off so that then then you can leave the rest of them in the freezer and not have to worry about them going gross. They're, They're quite valuable, though there are so many thousands of them, millions, when we had them for our experiments, they were collected with love from community groups and it, it was a, yeah, it was really important to sort of ration those toads as well. They were, yeah. they were being used for science and for our experiments. So, yeah, um, yeah that's why Ella was so delicate with her chiseling. And <laughs> chiseling. <laughs> but every toad counts. Yeah. And particularly, <laughs> yeah. Every toad counts. <laughs> it did. Every toad counts. Yeah. Yeah. So in total... Um, how many animals do you actually, so you, you were training these animals obviously to, to be, to, how many animals do you actually interact with or how many animals did you get photos of actually interacting with the meat or eating the meat? Is it talking about hundreds, thousands? No. So quail populations aren't huge. Yeah. Um, and where I was studying quails, it was um, very tricky, the terrain. So we used to have to use helicopters and we were walking around in big rocky gorges. So the size of my sites were about a square kilometre, maybe five square kilometres was the biggest one. And uh, in that site, there was probably only about 20 quolls living there. So, yeah, they're quite territorial, I believe, and their home range is quite large too. So I think in total, how many quolls would I have had? I would say in terms of wild quolls, maybe I had photos of about 120. That's a lot. Yeah. But in terms of statistics, it's not really so. Yeah. It's not a lot of statistical power. Mm. Yeah, but there's not that many and the territories are no, so huge. Exactly. There's only so, one yeah. person doing it. Yeah. I did yeah. have I did have a team of volunteers, amazing volunteers who helped. Um, but yeah, there is so only so much that a PhD student can do. Yeah. Yeah. And um, it is that's a really good point that you make as well, especially working with threatened species or endangered species, it's really hard to get enough animals to, I suppose, prove or disprove your hypothesis sometimes. So it's definitely yeah. uh, an issue. And yep. Ella obviously looks at that every day now working <laughs> Del Whoop. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah. And it is hard when you've got a kind of novel management action like we did um, to, you want to show that it's worthwhile because it takes a lot of effort to do this sort of stuff. We're talking about really remote locations and really tricky terrain so you want to show that the action that you're actually doing is is beneficial to the species but you need enough animals to actually demonstrate that yeah which is tricky 
So I guess the big question is, from what you could see, did it work? Wow, that's <laughs> a really good question. So actually my findings suggested that my baiting design didn't work, un- oh, unfortunately. Really? Yeah, so um, we know that CTA does work, um, although... And we know that wild quolls do take baits and they do associate that illness with cane toads, although it did seem from my research that perhaps three things, I guess. Perhaps I wasn't making the animals sick enough with that baiting design. Perhaps I didn't bait enough animals uh, because we needed about, I think it was 32% of the population needed to be trained and that they perhaps forget the lesson within about 120 days. So uh, by the time they had met a cane toad, they had forgotten basically yeah. that they had eat a, eaten a sausage and felt sick. So, um, yeah, unfortunately my study, it, it didn't work and I knew this because I set up a, a before and after control impact style experiment and, yeah, basically between my control sites and my treatment sites there was no difference and there was a huge decline in all of my quoll populations as soon as cane toads arrived. So if the sausages were to work, we would expect that on the treatment sites the quolls would survive and there would be more quolls. Um, so, yeah, it's although my experiment didn't work, uh, it doesn't necessarily suggest that CTA doesn't work in general. There's also possibly another problem. We don't know yet whether the quolls that learn to avoid toads through conditioned taste aversion pass on that lesson to their offspring. If they don't, then teaching quolls to avoid toads might not work that well in the long term. The impacts of toads on the quoll population would essentially just be delayed by a single generation. This is something that's obviously difficult to measure in the wild, but since recording this interview, Naomi and Ella have been exploring these issues using computer simulations and models. So, um, yeah. Yeah, and I guess it just kind of highlighted the difficulty, like we could do this in captivity on individuals, and yes, if you trained an individual the next day, they wouldn't want to eat a cane toad or a cane toad meat or whatever. Um, But Naomi was working in remote Kimberley she didn't exactly know when the toads were going to get there she had really remote locations to bait at so the actual logistics of getting something like this to work on the ground it just gets so much harder yeah oh completely yeah Yeah. I'm I'm curious so with captive quolls so how many how many of those you actually work with uh Ella did most of the captive uh style experiments but I for my particular experiment I think I used 16. And how do they react to it? They definitely there was a a definite significant difference between uh, animals who ate sausages and those who didn't the cane toad sausage that is in that they reduced their attack behavior they reduced interest in cane toad and uh, overall time, I guess, even just wanting to be near them, they would sniff them and basically run away, whereas those who hadn't eaten a cane toad sausage were way more bold and would go up to, a, up to the cane toad or even eat, eat a metamorph, which is a small cane toad. So, mm. yeah. Yeah, and boy quolls in general are a lot harder to train than the girls. The girls learnt a lot better. 
Really? <laughs> they're pretty <laughs> ride yeah. or die, the males. Yeah, they, yeah, they're really. We probably should have mentioned that <laughs> they're they pretty only. Ride or die. They are. Oh, yeah, <laughs> that's they are. the best thing that's, about they quals. They are ride yeah. or die, and particularly the males. The males only live for 12 months. Whereas the females can live up to three years, so oh wow, okay, yeah. yeah. So and the reason the males only live twelve months is because after the uh, during the breeding season they just get super amped up in testosterone and just spend all their time looking for a mate. They don't eat and they don't rest and they just basically die of malnourishment because they're just so exhausted at the end of the breeding season. So they get too horny. Yeah. yeah. Basically. Yeah. I didn't want to say it, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> it sounds like a teenage boy if they're allowed to just like roam. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Just unregulated. Yeah. Give like a 13 year old yeah. no mother and just let them roam around the yeah. streets. Yeah. Like, they'll probably die too. Yeah. We had, um, I had one quoll that survived for two years and his name was Iggy Pop because he literally <laughs> looked, <laughs> sorry Iggy Pop if you're listening. <laughs> But he looked very similar. He had some similarities. I mean, you described Ride him as being adorable, on. so I think he'd be okay with that. Yeah. Because he's not an adorable man. I mean. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so yeah. Um, ha- had a good life, I guess. Mm. Also, yeah. if Iggy, if you're listening, thank you for listening. Yeah. <laughs> Real honor. Yeah. <laughs> Please help us save the call. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I did really enjoy that one of your papers, the title... Not such silly sausages. Yeah, because <laughs> they're not so such good. silly sausages. <laughs> yeah. And um, it's it's inspired by, I guess, the idea that perhaps it is a silly idea to try and train wild animals. But uh, when we look at, uh, I guess, the potential of CTA and the history of CTA, conditioned taste aversion, that is, um, yeah, it's not so silly. And it, it is a thing um, you know, you can you can even relate to it probably yourself at home. There is something that you have eaten that you will never eat again, and just the smell of it will will put hairs this make the hairs in the back of your neck stand up. So, well, it's yeah. also such a non-intrusive idea of trying to protect animals instead yeah. of having to be out there to having to bring them in captivity, then train them for days and days and days or weeks and weeks and weeks. You're mm-hmm. like, no, you can set up traps, mm-hmm. put out poison or not poison, but a semi-poison yeah. for them. They can eat and hopefully get used to it eventually. And yeah. that's such a better way to deal with conservation versus the yeah. alternative because yeah. captivity is really stressful. Yeah. yeah, and a lot more cost-effective as well. If so much more cost-effective. Cost yeah, yeah. get it out um, in, en masse. Um, and I guess um, as well just on that point, we're sort of losing a lot of native Australian species and a lot of animals all around the world. So uh, to the point where our novel conservation tools are increasingly becoming questioned. So we really need to look at ideas that are outside the box too and, yeah, just do do all we can really to try and save some of our animals. Oh, yeah, it's really hard to convince governments to be like the only way to protect is to buy crap little land. It's got a lot of money. (laughs) This is like, no, no, they could be on land that's already protected or whatever or even private land just Poison them a little bit, yeah. make them really hungover, <laughs> and hopefully yeah. it works out. Yeah. That's a much yeah. easier way. It is. Yeah. Especially when you're dealing with cane toads, too. It's an animal they're killing anyway. Yeah. So, mm. you know, it's meat that's, I'm sure, free for you guys or is donated to you mm. guys. Yeah. So. Yeah. It was a win-win. Mm. Really. It's a win-win. Yeah. 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 And if anything, we've, we've found out a lot about um, other ideas or other things that we might be able to do, even though my experiment wasn't successful, my field work wasn't successful. There's been a lot of new ideas that have come from it um, yeah. as as we have evolved, which maybe if we, Ella, yeah. do you want to talk yeah. a little yeah, bit about yeah, yeah. Please. your stuff? Okay. Um, 
So my PhD kind of came out of the fact that um, even though we've said earlier that uh, cane toads have, the areas that cane toads have invaded, all the quolls or all the native predators that might eat them have disappeared. It's actually not entirely that true. There are actually some populations of quolls that are still hanging on in Queensland where the toads were originally introduced. So they uh, toads might have invaded 70 years ago or so and there's still populations of quolls that are um, relatively healthy and surviving alongside the toads. So my PhD was kind of just trying to work out what was happening with these populations, how were they surviving and could we use that to help the areas of the quolls range where the toads were still invading or hadn't invaded yet. And so I did that by going out into Queensland and collecting some of these animals and bringing them into captivity to kind of like, you know, why don't you eat toads? (laughs) Interrogate them. (laughs) Um, Which is a lot harder to do than uh, just asking them, unfortunately. But uh, what I found out was that these Queensland quolls actually don't attack toads at all so it's not that they have some sort of special uh, stomachs that are immune to cane toad poison they just don't go near them they just know not to eat them and that behavior is something that they pass down to their offspring so it's a heritable behavior so that means that a quoll if they're born and their parents knew not to eat cane toads then they're also know not to eat cane toads it's really cool yeah that's very Mm. cool yeah so it's just something innate um, we call it toad smart. <laughs> yeah, so, th- so there's hope. Yeah, so uh, which is really cool. And um, it kind of suggests that, like we've talked a lot about what we as humans can do to help the quolls, but really I think the best weapon they have is themselves. Like they have the ability to, to adapt to this threat. It's just that the problem is the threat is so strong and so rapid that most of the populations don't have time to adapt. They just disappear. Um, So then um, I was looking at how could we kind of promote this behaviour in the, um, in populations of northern quolls that are still threatened by cane toads. Earlier in this episode, we discussed ways that you might teach wild quolls not to eat toads. But here, there seems to be another possible solution. If some quolls don't eat toads, and that behavior is inherited by their offspring, then it might be possible to breed wild quolls that don't eat toads. How could you do that? The idea is um, this novel conservation uh, technique called targeted gene flow, which is basically uh, promoting adaptation in populations that are threatened. So with the northern quoll, what we would do is we would have a population of quolls that was about to be invaded by the cane toad, so we knew that it might disappear soon. And in that population, you'd probably have a few picky eaters that might not eat cane toads, but we know the vast majority probably would, and the numbers are about 95% of quoll populations will go extinct once cane toads invade. So how do we reduce that number? How do we help more populations survive? So we take our Queensland, our toad-smart Queensland quolls, and we bring them in ahead of the cane toad front, and they breed with the locals, and they get all those 
good locally adapted genes. So you're in the Northern Territory, you need stuff to be able to survive in the Northern Territory, for example. And they breed with the locals and they create these toad smart offspring that then once the cane toads arrive, the population then has more, is, is more able to adapt to the threat and therefore survive. So basically you're moving toad smart quolls into less toad smart populations and hoping they have lots of toad smart babies. Yes, <laughs> that's exactly <laughs> it. Exactly. Yes. Um, okay, how, how did it work out? Uh, These are another really annoying questions. That's what I hate no, asking the kind of results. Good questions. Yeah. I want to know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so most of my work was done on captive populations, just looking to see what behaviours and they... And, it takes a year for them to breed, so it takes a while to kind of work this stuff out. So by the end of my PhD, I had some toad smart babies that I could potentially release into the wild and see what was happening. So we did that on a offshore island just west of Darwin called Indian Island. Um, so we worked with the uh, traditional owners there and the Kembe Ranges, which are the ranges for that area, and released some toad smart and some toad naive, which is what we call them the not-so-smart ones. Uh, <laughs> say dumb. Toad dumb. <laughs> yeah, toad dumb. Um, <laughs> onto this offshore island that had cane toads on it but no quolls and no quoll predators and no nothing that the quolls could really negatively impact too much in terms of native species to kind of do a bit of an experiment in the wild to see if this idea would work. Um, unfortunately, <laughs> population... We didn't have many quolls to start with, so as was the problem with Naomi's work, small sample sizes is tricky. So the population um, established quite well, but then a there was a fire on the island around the breeding time the next year, and then there was a cyclone, oh and <laughs> so we went back the next year, which was the last year of my PhD, and caught. Uh, 12 animals, so six that had been born on the island and six that we'd released the previous year, uh, which is not many. No, yeah. <laughs> no, um, which was really disappointing. And then we went back this year and caught even less than that. So the population hasn't established, which is really disappointing, but it's also disappointing in that we can't – the idea was to look at whether this population, uh, if towed – smarts would be selected for if there was cane toads present and so if you don't have a population you can't look at that yeah Yeah. um which is a bummer but it probably the issues weren't to do with the strategy they were more to do with just bad luck and timing yeah Yeah. fire and cyclone yeah yeah Yeah. just you know not great and we had we didn't have as many that we wanted to establish the population to begin with because the breeding didn't do as well in captivity that than we thought it would and that was just bad luck as well and so it's just a whole bunch of bad luck sounds like a phd yeah yeah yeah. 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 you finish your phd congratulations (laughs) this is this is the reality of uh trying to sort of work with a complex ecosystem and do your experiments out in the field as a PhD student. A lot of students I often uh, would get a little bit jealous <laughs> lab-based PhDs essentially because you have so much control over the environment and yeah. over yeah. your experiments. So And a never-ending um, supply of subjects too. Exactly, mm, never-ending yeah. supply. But, yeah, this is... 
This you know, is, yeah, it's not always complete happy no, ending. No. Which is, you know, fine, a... but we learnt a lot about it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a lot of good that came from that, but yeah. just not exactly what we were planning for. No. Yeah, you guys did a short-term yeah. and long-term project. Yeah. yeah. That is like a perfect example of what you, they should be doing. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, and just it's not... Just invest a few more hundred thousand dollars to yeah. get a few more coals. And, and the just, idea yeah. isn't dead. No, so there's, it's not dead there's, at all. Um, there's interest in it. So the so Western Australia, the Kimberley is being invaded or is almost all invaded at the moment by cane toads, but then there's also the Pilbara, which is another part of Western Australia that has a lot of um, really important iconic species, including the northern quoll. So there's still potential for this idea to be implemented and there is interest in that, so that's There's a lot of offshore islands too where cane toads are expected to reach because they can get across on rafts and things like that over the wet season. (laughs) (laughs) So they sail. They sail, they do. They're unstoppable. They love it. Yeah, they love it. Yeah, they're like a horror movie. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But, yeah, again, lots of quolls and other um, desiurids. yeah, that yeah. could that could potentially Fasca Gale, for example. Nobody so, knows the impact of yeah. cane toads. A little relative of the a relative of the northern quoll. Yeah, an arboreal or lives in trees, I guess. Mm. Mm. So it's not dead, and although no. our experiments weren't success, huge raving success, yes. <laughs> um, we learned a lot. We learned a lot, and yeah. we still love it. Love our experiments, and yeah, definitely still have hope. So basically, these are two out-of-the-box strategies that could potentially be used together, I guess. Yeah, 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 for sure. And, yeah, because you could – the training, we're not sure how long it lasts, but if you could keep populations. Yeah, and it's – I should probably say, like, um, so targeted gene flow, which is basically introducing adapted things into area where that adaptation would be helpful. It's not a qual toad-specific solution like you might have – I don't know, um, a species where disease is spreading and there's individuals who are immune to the disease, you might be able to promote that immunity through the same sort of techniques. You might be able to introduce, uh, they're looking at a similar sort of technique, they're looking at, at the Great Barrier Reef, whether they could introduce warm adapted corals to further to southern areas to help the Great Barrier Reef adapt to the warming of the ocean and that sort of thing. So it's a similar sort of adaptations occur in nature and usually evolution is quite slow but we can help it along or speed it up speed a little bit. bit yeah 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 so pretty broad potential applications mm. yeah um mm. well, that was really good yeah yeah, yeah thanks so that much. was good yeah. yeah do you guys have any i guess your failed experiments you kind of explained really <laughs> quickly oh but if he has any fun, weird stories in the I mean, you guys both so kind many. of described oh, them what about so yeah many. oh yeah the first more, okay. one i thought of was the the turtles last time we were in the... Oh, you should tell that turtle story. No, but you were you were the one there. I have another story that okay, I'm going to tell. Okay, you tell that one. <laughs> yeah. I don't know what else I, I have. I have I have all the quarrels escaping out of the traps because the traps were too big. That <laughs> was bad. Just... What does that mean? Necks. Oh, yeah, the chicken necks are disgusting. Can mention the chicken necks. Yeah. <laughs> Green maggot bags. Oh. Neck. We <laughs> have a lot of gross stories. Yeah. yeah, we have a lot of gross stories. Can tell a cute story. Cute story. Yeah. yeah. Fieldwork win. Yeah, fieldwork win, which was last time we went up to the 
uh, Indian Island, which is where we tried to establish the population. And I only, it was a two-week trip and I only got there on the second week. We didn't catch any quolls on the second week, so I didn't even see a quoll the whole time I was there. It was really disappointing. But <laughs> Cute story. The last, but the last day of traps, so we'd just gone out to pull the last set of traps in and we were leaving that day. And I was walking back up the beach with my big backpack of traps on my back. Just like, oh, I haven't caught any quolls. How disappointing. And got to the got back to camp and Naomi was there with Brett, one of the rangers that we go out with. Um, Naomi was like, guess what? It's like, what? I'm so grumpy. I don't want to. It's like, look in the bucket. I looked in this bucket. It's a whole bunch of baby turtles in the bucket. Oh, no way. <laughs> yeah. So what had happened is um, Brett had had this tent set up right next to where we were camping all week and we'd just been kind of wandering around and he'd started unpacking his swag and getting ready to pack up because we were leaving that day and I just noticed all these kind of movements underneath the tent it's like what is happening and then you were there yeah sure enough all these baby turtles burst out from underneath underneath where <laughs> like, his swag like was. Like sea turtles? Yeah, sea turtles. Yeah, sea turtles. Oh. Yeah, so, yeah, so we camp on the beach, um, like just up on the sand dunes sort of. So a turtle had laid her nest there and we didn't know. Brett had put his tent up on top of it and just as he was packing up, all the turtles kind of burst <laughs> out. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> It was, was so cool. cool. And so then we we took them out and released them into the ocean, which was lovely. Oh, that sounds amazing. Mm. Oh, that's so unfair. It sounds yeah. amazing. Yeah, little flatback turtles. Oh, they're flatbacks too? Yeah. Oh, some flatbacks. Yeah. <laughs> I'm show you some flatbacks. I have a weird turtle obsession. <laughs> yeah, we'll show you a video. Yeah. Show you a video. It's so cute. Yeah, yeah that's really cute. cute. Oh, so that wasn't a fail, but that was that was nice. Yeah. That's a really yeah. nice way to end an experiment too. Yeah. That was, you're like, that I was hate my... life. My PhD sucked. <laughs> Catch a single thing. We just spent all of my money. <laughs> Turtle babies. Babies. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. It's my, your one. Mine is um, a huge fail. It's not as cute. It's definitely not cute at all. Mm. It happened. Um, but oh gosh, I actually have hundreds of fail stories. I lived in the field for two and a half years, so I was very field wow. based. I lived in a tent, um, so I have lots and lots of fails. But I suppose. The biggest fail was during the wet season, so about 180 mils of rain falls during the, during the wet season, generally in the Kimberley, and all at once. Um, not all at once, but all in the wet season. One day, that's Within about three months, four-month period, it rains a lot. Um, anyway, I was radio tracking quolls at this point and the site where we were radio tracking quolls was a good five-kilometre walk from uh, our base and uh, so we had walked out a heap of gear including these motion sensor camera traps that I mentioned before. Each of these traps are worth about $750 each. Um, not only that but we had basically a cache of, of gear so we didn't have to walk all the gear out all the time. So we had uh, a big angle fridge, a solar panel, car battery to help run our our fridge so we could keep our toad sausages cold, for example, <laughs> um, tents, food, all sorts of stuff. And um, it started to rain basically and we could see on the radar that it wasn't going to stop raining and it was too dangerous to walk out to the side at this point. Um, and 
essentially the river rose 11 metres overnight and what? swallowed, yeah, <laughs> 11 metres. <laughs> it swallowed my entire field site, uh, which was in a gorge. So it took all of the motion sensor camera traps. It took the angle fridge. It took oh, everything. No. So when we... Uh, and we had actually tried to put everything up high because we were anticipating this, but 11 metres of a river, you can't really, you can't really you compete with that. Yeah, you can't wow. go much higher <laughs> than that. Yeah. yeah, so um, we went back to find everything was sodden or washed away um, and some of the camera traps survived and we downloaded the photos off them and there was a crocodile... <laughs> Swimming around, which is funny because we were looking for quolls and instead we just had all these images of all these crocodiles <laughs> underneath. Underneath, So yeah. um, lucky for insurance and um, lucky also for having really forgiving field supervisors at the time. Um, but, yeah, that was probably my, my largest – well, it's my most expensive fail anyway. So, yeah, hopefully I can still get a job now after <laughs> everyone has heard about that. Was it good for insurance? But here I can show you yeah. videos of just how much water there was. Yeah. Look, there's crocodiles. Before and after photo, it's like dry. Yeah. Crocodile. Yeah, yeah it, it, it really was. It was really, really meters. funny. 11 metres. 11 metres, sorry. Yeah. 30 feet, I'm trying to say. Yeah, 30 yeah. feet. Yeah, it was... It's more than that, actually. It's like 45 feet. It was huge. We actually went... Fr- we actually got a boat from the shed and we were getting around in a boat. Uh, and, yeah, my boss's house flooded up to his roof. We had to go oh. in and sort of fish out what we could, all the floating wow. debris and things. So, um, yeah, it's it's really unforgiving and you don't really know when it's going to happen. You can sort of see that there's a low trough on the on the in the system... But because you're doing field work and you're radio tracking, you you have to sort of, you know, weigh up the benefits. I don't know what the moral of the story is, but just I don't know. get Be ready. Yeah. Yeah. Get insurance. Yeah. <laughs> get insurance. Uh, yeah. yeah, cool. Well, this has been super fun. It has been. Well, it was awesome. Thanks, guys. Thanks so much again to dr ella kelly and to dr naomi indigo for talking to us for this episode as usual you can find us on social media at twitter and on twitter and instagram and facebook at at amelia podcast thanks so much for listening and hopefully we'll have another episode for you soon bye Animalia Podcast is hosted by Annie Allsbrook and Farley Connolly, with occasional interjections by me, the sound engineer David Roker. Our logo is designed by Osvaldo Branklin and all original music is by Sean Pratt.